Welcome back to Taproot Season 4, Cultivating a Career. I'm Ivan Baxter. And I'm Liz Haswell. One of the biggest decisions that trainees face is what kind of scientist they want to be. Even though only a small fraction of graduate students go on to become the head of an academic research group, many of the training structures we have in place are still focused solely on that career. Our guest today, Kelly Gillespie of Bayer Crop Science, has taken a different route, and we are excited to share our conversation with you. We talk about her journey and some of the lessons she has learned about what it takes to succeed in a science career in industry. Kelly emphasizes a milestone-based approach where each decision is broken into small steps and evaluated at each point. We think you'll find it really useful, whether you go to industry, stay in academia, or go on to any other type of science career. With that, let's get on to the show. Welcome to Taproot Season 4. Our guest today is Kelly Gillespie, the Nursery Solutions Lead at Bayer Crop Sciences. Kelly got her BS at Knox College, a small liberal arts college in Illinois, and then she moved on to do a PhD with Lisa Ainsworth at the University of Illinois. She did a short postdoc with Dick Sayre at the Danforth Center, where I work, before moving on to Monsanto, where she has worked for nine years, staying with the company through the merger with Bayer. Kelly, welcome to the Taproot. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. We're happy to have you. Our paper today is titled Greater Antioxidant and Respiratory Metabolism in Field-Grown Soybean Exposed to Elevated Ozone Under Both Ambient and Elevated Carbon Dioxide. It's from 2011, and it was published in Plant, Cell, and Environment. So Kelly, can you just give us a, a short overview of this paper? Sure. So so this work was done at the Soyface field site at University of Illinois. The overarching goal of this paper, as well as sort of the suite of all the work that's done at the Soyface site, is to inform some of the IPCC models and the FAO sort of world food projections under different future climate change scenarios. So understanding how plants respond to ozone is really very difficult because ozone varies from day to day. There's really very little ozone at night. It's created every single day when the sun sort of hits the the atmosphere and converts our atmospheric substances into ozone. And so we see varying ozone concentrations over the course of the season. And at Soyface, we elevate to a certain percentage over what that daily ozone concentration is. And really, we're looking at some of the biochemical and physiological mechanisms that we know from you know more controlled studies that ozone affects. And really, what does that look like under field scenarios? And then how do those systems change under elevated CO2? And so historically, people and, and even ourselves at Soyface had a really hard time trying to, to characterize and summarize the effects that ozone had on plants because of this fluctuating concentration. And so in this paper, we used sort of a different statistical technique. It's, it's not terribly uncommon, but but sort of different in this kind of work, where, where we did a principal components analysis to pull out the effects of, of ozone from the other varying environmental components, so we could try to summarize and, and think more about the effects that ozone was having on the plants. The whole soy face structure is, is really interesting to me, but I don't really understand what it is. It's a consortium of groups from 
multiple institutions that all work together or how does that work? Um, it is. So it's largely led out of the University of Illinois and the USDA. So the USDA has a site there on campus at University of Illinois. The Soyface field facility is funded sort of by a variety of different funding sources. But yeah, it's it's a consortium of different labs. Most of them are at University of Illinois. But yeah, it's it's a field study that's it's been running since 2001. And and basically, it's it's one of a, a number of, of face sites that have been established all over the globe, looking at different different types of ecosystems, really to get the best, most sort of real world accurate understanding of how future climate scenarios will affect these ecosystems. So initially, it's a Department of Energy funded establishment. And maybe you said this, and I missed it. What does what does face mean? Why face? Uh, FACE stands for Free Air Concentration Enrichment. Right. I think about these sites where you're like locally concentrating ozone, but it's like instantly diffusing away, right? Yes. Yeah. So that's one of the really cool things about uh, face, the FACE setup. And this is true regardless of the ecosystem, but here we, we study soybean. And so the there's gas analyzers in the center of the ring. And then that those gas analyzers, the, the data is fed to a manifold that sits just outside the ring. And then the ring has tubes that surround the entire ring. And depending on the wind speed, wind direction, and then also the gas concentration at the center of the ring, all of that information is fed into an algorithm that basically tells the, the gas manifolds you know, which pipe around the ring should release either ozone or CO2. So you, know, you could imagine if the wind is coming from the east, then the tubes upward, you know, upwind, so on the east, would be open and would re- be releasing gas ac- across the, the ring. And then wind direction changes or, or wind speed changes and more or less gas is, is released to maintain that gas concentration at the center of the ring. And so a ton of work to do these experiments uh, or the setup. And then you guys, what was sort of new about this experiment from my memory is that you guys were actually going out and trying to do biochemistry and molecular biology on these plants. Correct. So would you just go out, did you do this over multiple times of the day or was this a like one-stop shop where you did everything? How did, how did that all work? So for this particular paper, we went out five times during the growing season at midday. So that's really the best time to capture a lot of the photosynthetic data that's, that's also reported in this paper. And at the same time that we were measuring photosynthesis, we would have canisters of, of liquid nitrogen and all of these pre-labeled packets. So packet making, we all got quite good at folding aluminum foil to make these packets. <laughs> many, many a uh, evening of TV watching, folding packets for, for these samples. <laughs> but, but yeah, so we would go out, take the, the measurements during the midday, and then immediately following taking the photosynthetic measurements, we would take leaf samples, put them in the, the pre-labeled packets, and then all of that would go into liquid nitrogen to be sorted, stored, and, and analyzed later. One of the really cool things about, about these kind of experiments, and certainly this paper, is that that takes an army of people. Because if I were to try and do this on my own, to take all of those measurements and, and to get all of those samples, I certainly wouldn't be able to do it in, in sort of the hour or two hour time frame, you know, at midday when when you'd want to, you know, try to capture everything at the same time, right? Because if I went out at 9 a.m. and took samples in, in, you know, one of the experimental units, it would probably be 5 p.m. before I'd get to the next, to the last one. 
your your biology has changed at that point and it's not relevant to compare anymore. So yeah, so it definitely took an army of people. But the cool thing too is that because of that, you know, I had a lot of people that were volunteering and helping with my collections, but then I of course went out and and helped with a lot of other people's collections. One of my good friends, you know, was doing work on on how insects respond to elevated CO2 and so I learned a lot about entomology and bug collection because I went out with her. Not my project, but she volunteers for for my sampling campaigns and I volunteer for hers. So obviously you talked about that being in a um, very collaborative environment. And, I, and one of the things that is also true is that companies have a very collaborative yes. environment. So that, that was probably yes. very good preparation. And the combination of doing like a molecular biology focused work as, as and the field skills that you had was fairly unusual mm-hmm. uh, back in, in 20, was it 2012 when you graduated? Uh, I remember since you were at the Danforth Center being very unsurprised that you got uh, immediately snapped up by Monsanto once you started applying. But it was also my recollection that you were really torn at the, that point about whether to go into I industry was. or stay in academia. And those kinds of tough decisions and how you think through those is something we really want to talk about. So take us through that, what was happening then and how you had to make that decision. So I had graduated with my PhD in 2010. So then I was at the Danforth Center, you know, really 2010, 2011. And then in 2011, I joined Monsanto. So so maybe let's take a step back. So one of the things that, that Lisa was phenomenal at talking to me about was, was sort of career planning and career advice. One of the things that that Lisa had really worked a lot with me on was just thinking about what is the kind of work that I want to do? What are the skills that I think I need to get there? And that was really the way that I'd approached even finding a postdoc. I was doing field work, physiology. I was characterizing the molecular biology and biochemistry responses, but I wanted to get into understanding how do you manipulate genes? How does that how does that change what you can create? So that was the, the postdoc that I did at the Danforth Center. And so then when the opportunity kind of came around to go to Monsanto, it was actually really difficult to think about what kind of experience that would be because I didn't really know very many people in in industry. Couldn't kind of get a sense of what the job would be like. And so that that scares you. Or I at least want to have, you know, I want to have a little bit of more of a sense of what I'm getting into. Absolutely before you kind of sign on the dotted line. And so I reached out to my network and actually it turned out I, I did know somebody. So I was able actually to have a really good conversation just about the kind of science that we do now, you know, what, what a job entails, what's the day-to-day. And really at the end of the day, I thought about it like another postdoc. I'm going to be doing some cutting edge science in in one, two, you know, three years. I can kind of treat it like a postdoc and, you know, move on to something else at that point. It was a little less scary and it would be okay to to kind of take this sort of big leap by by just sort of rationalizing and thinking through that it's going to be a good experience. I know somebody who is currently having a good experience with the company and I think I'm going to get some skills and and some different ways to do science from this job. And if it turns out I want to come back to academia, it's, it's a couple years. It's not, you know, my whole life. It's such an interesting approach. There's a, uh, like a blog post, I think, or maybe it's even an article. I, I'll, I'll look it up and we can put it in the show notes. Written by a Harvard professor who, you know, Harvard, like famously doesn't give mm-hmm. tenure very often. And so she wrote this whole article. I think the title is, a seven-year postdoc, and it was basically how she treated her assistant professorship there as if it were, as you say, like mm-hmm. another postdoc, and how that just helped her mentally manage 
the decision to take that job and then like what it was like there. And then of course she did end up getting tenure. But anyway, I like, I like that idea where it doesn't feel like this permanent burning of bridges or shutting of doors, but more like you know, sort of what postdocs are meant to be, which is to mm-hmm. get a little bit of experience and a little bit of training before you move on to something permanent. That's kind of a cool way of thinking of it. Well, and one of the things, you know, and this is where Lisa really helped too, you know, at the time I, I did want to, you know, lead a lab and, and kind of, you know, well, I, I really wanted to be like, like Lisa. Well, I still do. Lisa's I want to be like Lisa. <laughs> I know. Um, Who doesn't want to be like Lisa? Yeah. Story of our lives. Yeah. Um, anyway, <laughs> one of the things that I knew I, I didn't know how to do at the time was manage a lab and manage people, right? And and there's all the, the budget component of it and, and sort of the, the business of running a lab. And that was something that I'd seen other PIs kind of struggle with. And I said, okay, well, companies are good at budgets, mostly. <laughs> you know, companies, companies, you know, know how to manage people. No matter what, I'll, I'll do some science and, and I'll, I'll get a better sense of sort of the business aspect of science. So but just to, before we kind of move on from that, you did a did. fairly short postdoc. And so would the, did that make it easier to think about the alternatives of, oh, if I, if I treat this as another postdoc, I could still come back and maybe do even an additional postdoc? Yes, it did. I didn't intend to have a short postdoc. When I when I came to the Danforth Center, it was <laughs> under a Department of Energy postdoc, well-established group, three to five year postdoc. Exciting, especially exciting because I have a husband and a daughter at the time who was going to start kindergarten. So I was like, okay, we're going to move to St. Louis. My daughter will start kindergarten three, five years. That's actually a pretty long postdoc. It's a nice amount of time. Then when I joined the lab at the Danforth Center with Dr. Sayer, in the first six months informed us that the lab was going to be moving to Los Alamos in New Mexico. And so, you know, that's exciting. It's it's a great place to do science. It D- didn't quite work for my family and I. We had a house. My, my husband had a job. Moments of panic set in. <laughs> and, and actually, a lot of folks at the Danforth Center were wonderful and and trying to help me think through, you know, are there opportunities at the Danforth Center where I can stay and, and continue to do science? It was going to be a moment of transition regardless of, of whether I stayed at the Danforth Center, it was going to be a different postdoc, or if I joined Monsanto. This actually ties in with one of our other episodes this, this season where about trying to make a decision you didn't know was coming gets forced on you. Just to sort of touch back to that decision timeline, how much time did you feel like you had to make a decision for your career at that point? It was less than six months. I want to say it was maybe three or so. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, was, it was three. Yep. Wow. So that's, it seems like a long time, but it's it's really not. But you at least had some time to, you could stop and yes. consider things yes. and think through things before you had yes. to make any critical decisions. So, okay. So you, you started at Monsanto with the idea that this could be a couple year. Yeah. Worst case. It's not been that way. <laughs> yeah, it's now it's now a nine year postdoc. I'm kidding because you obviously are you are have really built a career there. When did that switch? When did you decide no, this is this is the right place for me and I want to keep doing this? Within the first year. I mean, something 
I think a lot about the kind of science that motivates me. I think about a lot about the kind of projects I like to work on. And maybe you can tell by sort of the soy face space. I like high collaboration. I like big, big research, right? So research that's beyond just the contribution that I'm making. It takes a village. It takes years and years and years to, to sort of pull things together. I like collaborating across different disciplines. And, and within the first year, that, that was everything that I was doing. And so, so it, was, it was wonderful and still is. Okay. And so, so it was very quick that you decided to stick around, but your LinkedIn page or, or knowing you and the various times I've seen you with different things on your business card, you've had many different roles I have. at Monsanto in that time. Can, can you give us a maybe a short summary of all the different places you've moved and it just as, to set the background for some questions about how things actually work within a company? So I've worked on a variety of different projects. But sort of fundamentally, I've spent eight years in biotech and then this last year in breeding. With my time in biotech, I joined the company as a physiologist. So I was running field experiments where we, we had some different genes that we were looking to put into soybean and corn. And then, of course, there's a hypothesis behind that. But as everybody knows, biology sometimes does and sometimes does not follow your hypothesis and you got to figure it out. It's, you know, a giant detective story. And so, you know, my job was to run the field experiments and, and understand the sort of physiological mode of action for some of these different genes that we were working on. Something that's interesting to think about in industry is that a lot of times, especially in the discovery space, projects are high risk. And the intention is we're not, not every single one of them is going to succeed. And so very early on, most of my research actually helped to stop some very high risk projects that weren't playing out in a way that was, was going to add value to, you know, our farmer customers. And so that was, that was a really interesting experience. That's not something really that, that I'd ever experienced sort of in, in academia is that you do some science and then that actually tells you you shouldn't work on this anymore. And it should probably happen more often. Maybe it should. Yeah. <laughs> we Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's more of a thing. We call them stop-go experiments mm -hmm. where like the experiment tells you you should stop or you should keep going. Now here we call them milestone-based funding or milestone experiments. But if you end up showing that you should not go that, that is because this is such a collaborative environment, that means that you're changing a lot of people's lives Yes. If at that point, right? I mean, if there are entire research foci that get sort of massively yes. diverted, the, the company was going all in this one direction and then it's like, oh no, that turns out not going to work. And we're literally people who, for not their own fault, they, it's like, well, we don't need someone to do X or Y anymore. So one thing that you said that I want to correct, so you said a company's going all in one direction. So that actually is not a good business plan for exactly the reason that you shared. A good company or a good group will have a portfolio of projects that you're working on. This whole idea of the business of science, you know, you might think of projects as how much effort. So you kind of think of a, a XY graph, right? One access, you say, you know, how long or how much effort or how many people is this going to take for any, any given project? And then how risky is it? How possible is it? Do we have evidence to say from another company, from academia, that this actually should work? is this total flyer, right? Like we have no idea, but we think if it works, it could be huge. Mm -hmm. yeah. So what you try to do is have a portfolio of projects that are sort of all across that two-dimensional grid, right? And so the idea would be is that some of them um, will actually work and that the team you know, to, to contribute on the projects that actually work. 
But I think that is a hard mental and sometimes even emotional switch um, for scientists to, I mean, high-risk projects are fun. Maybe, maybe with one more year of funding, we'd get there. But that's Yeah, tough. well, it's that whole sunk costs <laughs> yes, thing, right? Yes. <laughs> this idea that you've invested so much. But you know what I love about what you're talking about is that it also sort of this whole concept of stop, go, or milestone-based experiments is that that's actually also what you did in your career, (laughs) right? So you you were trying to decide whether to pursue something that you already knew that was like not risky, which was academia. I mean, well, academia is know, risky, but risky at least I knew it. Like, <laughs> yes. I know, right? It's maybe not the best, but in, in terms of like knowing what the environment was going to be like and what would be expected of you and how your skill set would play out, you had a pretty good idea. And then you have this risky idea of going into industry and you decided to gather a little bit more information by actually trying it out. I think that's kind of cool. Yeah, actually, I'd never thought of it that way. But um... yeah, so in that vein, you decide to make this move, you you get one of many positions at Monsanto, and then you you move over there. So what do you find in those first couple years that your graduate and postdoc training actually prepared you for? And what do you find it did not prepare you for? So I would say is the things that my graduate work and postdoc did prepare me for is the highly collaborative environment. Soy face, given that there's you know a lot of ideas and a lot of things that people want to do, there was Lisa Ainsworth, Don Ort, Steve Long, Andy Leakey, Carl Bernacki, the group of people that you have to convince that this is a good idea. And, and that's true of any sort of research. You have to kind of convince your PI or convince a funding agency. That's that's true in, in industry too. It's funding is never unlimited. There's more ideas than we have funding to try out. And so we need to convince people that it's a good idea to do this research. So so that's the same. I think I thought that the soy face experiment was huge, right? The fact that it was actually in a field, that it was a real, you know, at one point it was really a farmer's field outside agriculture. But then the physiology experiments that I ran in my first year joining the company are frame of inference was the entire Midwest growing region, right? I was running 30 location trials across Kansas, Iowa, Illinois, the entire soybean growing region. And so just that level of collaboration to collect all that information, to to get the samples and the data that you need is just kind of up to 10x, right? <laughs> and so, so that's fun because I, I enjoy that kind of big science, but it's a lot of people to coordinate. What were the things that you were totally unprepared for when you started at Monsanto? I think the the piece that I was not as prepared for was the interaction with people of completely different backgrounds. Kind of, I said, you have to convince people that this is the right kind of science to do. You know, at Soyface, for example, well, okay, I'm a physiologist and Lisa's a physiologist. And so I have to convince a physiologist that a physiology idea is a good, a good thing to do. At Monsanto, your boss or even your boss's boss or the head of the department, I mean, they'll likely have a degree that's not even anywhere near yours, might not even be in biology. Right. It might be engineering or, or statistics or analytics might be a business degree. And so translating and, and talking about your science in a way that was hard and still is hard. That's, I think, one of the things that that we continue to struggle with. So you're not you're not talking about ACI curves very much. You could. And I was. But I didn't use the term ACI curve. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, no, that that wouldn't that wouldn't work. <laughs> so we have a really vibrant ecosystem of academic and industrial plant science here in St. Louis. And so I've really been able to watch people who I've worked with move in and out of academia and industry and startups. And it does seem like when you're working in 
in industry, it, it can feel risky because large decisions will change and people will get laid off, and but then they might go to a startup. Do you feel that at a, I mean, you, you've been at a very large company for a while, but uh, you know, while I've been there, Monsanto has had several rounds of layoffs. I mean, how does that sort of manifest itself within the company? Yeah, that's that's always a tough a tough time and a tough conversation. What I think, what scientists do in industry, maybe a little bit differently than than what they do in academia, is we talk about our our skills as the type of of work we could do, almost project agnostic. Right, so so I joined the company as a physiologist. Now I'm I manage a portfolio of technologies and a team. And so for whatever reason, and, and I might even be a part of the decision or a recommendation to stop a project. The the important thing to do is to make sure that your skills, the things that you're developing, the things, the the kind of things you can contribute, are still something that the company will find valuable on another type of project. A lot of it's a conversation with your manager, it's a conversation with your network, and I would actually say that's one thing that I've I've really enjoyed in my experience, at Monsanto, and I'd hope other industry companies do it too, but I only have you know one one experience. Monsanto and and Bayer do a phenomenal job around career development. It's a big part of every conversation you have with your manager, always talking about well, what are you working on? What are you getting better at? What are you going to work on this year? How's that going? How can I help you? How can we find a training for you? How can we find a mentor for you in that space? I think as long as you have that sort of continuous improvement mindset about yourself and you're kind of reality checking that your skills are, are something that the company is continuing to find driving them in a, in a direction that they want to go, you'll be fine. I think when um, when folks have a hard time, it's, it's when they get sort of too caught up in the specific project and the outcome of the project, and they have a hard time sort of transferring skills to another type of project. I think that's, that's really where folks get caught. Yeah, that's where the rubber meets the road for sure. I think academics, we over identify with our research topic sometimes. And I feel like in industry, you have to loosen your grip and be willing to just like let go of a, of a topic or an idea if it's not flying. Well, and I think the cool thing, and at this point been here for a few years, um, some of the topics that, that I love, you kind of see come back around. Right. So, so there might be a paper that comes out. We decided to stop a project a few years ago and a new paper comes out in that space. And then all of a sudden there's a renewed interest and you kind of get together a brainstorm group and you say, hey, has something fundamentally changed? First of all, why did we stop the project? What was the challenge? Is there a new technology or a new understanding that actually helps overcome that? And should we start it back up? Don't, don't ever lose your documentation or <laughs> lose your interest in something. Things do come back around. Can you give a more specific example of that? Well, so maybe maybe one thing. So so something that I came into the company with is sort of this this understanding and idea around different ways to analyze environmental variables and and how do we think about interactions and and one of the challenges that that we were having with some of the projects that we were working on is that we were seeing these interactions or at least we had ideas that these interactions were occurring. And so I was able to sort of spearhead a working group and a team even though I didn't lead people, kind of got together a, a group of folks that were you know interested in kind of doing this kind of science and but you know at the time that didn't really go anywhere because there wasn't sort of institutionalized support for for these different kind of analytics fast forward a few years later Monsanto acquires climate I mean a massive data science and analytics engine and and now fast forward again a few years later and data science is is the baseline of of everything we do at the company 
and so I think that's you know that's kind of an interesting example of where in a small way it was like oh I'm not getting any support I want to do these different kind of analytics techniques I at the time I kind of dropped it and and now it's almost silly to think that we weren't doing that eight years ago <laughs> right right when people are coming from academia what are the, what do you think the biggest hurdles they have to overcome in sort of adapting to the Bayer culture, for example, I guess that's the only real life example you have, but uh, what are the things they have the most trouble with? Sure. So I, so I will give one um, comment on the culture piece. So Bayer, um, Legacy Monsanto and, and now Bayer are very matrixed. And so that means that it's it's not the opposite of a matrix is hierarchical. And so I think one thing that that folks sometimes struggle with is is they think they need to just just convince their boss, right? And if if I can convince my manager, then you know that that's it and that's okay and and that's you know we can move forward. And so I think help people sort of realizing that that it's it's a much more sort of nuanced influence network. And sort of the the faster you kind of learn and and I mean get help right ask people ask around <laughs> who are the influencers how do how do decisions get made the the sooner you can figure that out and not sort of assume that it's sort of only your manager you need to to influence I think the better people that's something that that was surprising to me and I think you know can be surprising to to folks coming in sort of from a culture standpoint what are the what are the types of skill sets and abilities that play very well from a from a skills standpoint i think you know and I, I mentioned this a little bit there's so much of what we do is is big data and analytics and models and and i think anything people can do to even have a working knowledge or a familiarity or some part of their project that's that's really thinking about or or collaborating with somebody working in in sort of big data and and sort of deeper analytic techniques would be highly valuable and i think sometimes that can sound discouraging cuz not every single project sort of lends itself to big data kind of analysis so i don't do you know, I thought the kind of science I did in 2011 was big data. It's, it's not. It's not even close, right? <laughs> Something that helps, though, is to have enough of a working knowledge that you can have a good conversation about what kind of models or, or how an analysis can drive value with somebody who is an expert in that space. If you think about how do you break down right. problems in a way that a IT tool or an you know analysis model can can consume. Right, so it's more just about how do you have that conversation with those experts than I know these skills and I can do this myself. So Kelly, one thing we like to do sort of at the end is to ask our guests about advice they would give to people who are who are coming up trainees. And so there are probably a lot of trainees who listen to this podcast who are interested in positions in industry. So what advice would you give them, maybe a graduate student, maybe a postdoc who are considering uh, pursuing a career in industry? Yeah, I'd say there's two things. Um, so first of all, I would try to find someone in your extended network who works in industry, right? So a mentor, a friend, somebody you can talk to. For example, at the American Society of Plant Biologists, there's always a kind of meet meet a scientist, talk to a mentor, you know, put yourself out there and, and meet somebody in industry that you can talk to that can help you kind of answer your specific questions. So find a mentor is number one. I think the the second one would be look for internships. 
that certainly I know Monsanto Bayer, Bayer now, you know, Bayer has summer internships, six month internships. See how, if you can fit something like that into to your trainee experience. I think other, other industries or other companies have as well. And so I think that that sort of gets to that kind of, I like the way you said it, Liz, earlier, that milestone-based approach. An internship is even less less of a commitment than, you know, a two or three-year job, right? And you get a sense of the culture, you get a sense of the people, what kind of science is done. Just more experience helps. Okay, let's let's say there is somebody who who knows you indirectly. I guess an extended network, like a lot of graduate students don't have a network that extends to industry. So like... How how do folks in industry feel about, you know, a cold call or a cold email from some graduate student that they've never heard of in a lab they've never heard of? So I don't mind. Um, I mean, I think it varies by people. And this would be the same in, in academia, right? You have some PIs yeah, like who are things do. like, yeah, call me, no big deal. And some PIs are like, that's annoying. <laughs> so it's the same, you know, the same right. kind of people exist right. in industry. You know, it's not that's not different. I would say for myself... I mean, I went through this. I know how scared and and just freaked out I was about the decision. And so, I mean, I try to put myself out there as much as possible to to open up that black box and give people somebody to talk to. This is where um, your science society, certainly yes. ASPB, uh, is, is a great way to get those connections. And so it's always part of the, the national meeting is yes. – opportunities to talk to company people and there's a presence at ASPB's national meeting but I think and I think most other societies have some have that as well yeah completely I would agree um I mean even a shout out to Plante I mean there's you know different blog articles and things about jobs and industry on Plante so any of the authors of those you'd be happy to to talk I think emphasizing it's your extended network yes. that matters so does your does your advisor have yes industry connections does your anyone on your committee have industry connections those kinds of things um, are very important yeah and underutilized too I feel like students often don't feel don't feel like they can use their thesis committee in the way that thesis committee members are willing to be used do you know what I mean yeah I feel like they're not just there to like green light the thesis they're there to provide all of the network and support and knowledge and often students don't feel like they can tap that in the ways that everybody on the thesis committee would be perfectly willing to do. Well, I think in general, cold calling people is not as bad of an idea as as it seems like. I mean, that's interesting. Everybody was in, you know, an early career stage at some point. What's the worst that could happen, right? So you send a cold email, you send, right, right. They, don't they don't respond. respond and you're right? in the same exact boat that you're in today. So, you know, I think sometimes it's, it's, right you know, kind of getting over that initial, oh gosh, this is scary. What if they don't respond? Well, so what? <laughs> They're just, you're in the same spot. <laughs> yeah. So, so Kelly, from your perspective, if someone has decided that industry is where they want to go, what are the relative advantages of doing a postdoc anyway or not? And, you know, obviously it's going to be somewhat specific for every person, but yep. do you do you think, uh, are most of the people you think hired with PhDs coming right out of grad school or are they doing postdocs? It depends on the, the sort of area of, of science. So for example, people with degrees in breeding tend to come to companies straight out of their graduate work. People with degrees in molecular biology tend to have postdocs and then come to industry. So some of it, at least from my perspective, seems a little bit more like 
that's just what's expected for that area of science. I don't, I'm working at trying to understand sort of why we, we want some people to have postdocs and some don't. Some of it's supply and demand, right? So, I mean, we're, you know, you can kind of see this on, on Bayer's career board. We're hiring, you know, data scientists like no tomorrow, right? And so, so that kind of those, those kind of skills and those kind of individuals might get hired with, with a little less training where a sort of protein or protein biochemist or molecular biologist, you know, you might not see as many of those, of those job requisitions. And so, you know, it'll be maybe more competitive to get that kind of role. So on average, people tend to think that they have to check the box on every single qualification on a job requisition before applying. That is not true. That is not uh-huh. true. Um, I would say if if you check about 50% of the requisition of the qualifications for a job requisition, I would say apply. And certainly, there's some base requirements. You know that if if you're if the job says it's like 75% travel and you're not willing to travel, probably not the job for you. <laughs> but you know, other than that, right. I would I would go ahead and apply. And something that's near and near near and dear to my heart is really trying to empower women scientists. And there's a lot of, of research actually that says women do a, a worse job of about thinking about stretch assignments. And so, you know, men tend to think on average, not ever, not everyone, but on average, men tend to apply to jobs where they qualified for, you know, sixty to seventy percent of the the job qualifications, women tend not to apply to a job unless they think they can already do 90 to 100% of job qualifications. And that's so that's very interesting. Please apply. That's great. Thank you. Thank you for that part. I think that's wonderful. All right. Well, Kelly, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming on and giving us your insight on this. If people want to get a hold of you to reach out, cold call, what are the, the best ways to sort of do that? Yeah, so I would actually say I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn. And so I do actually get quite a few messages through LinkedIn, but either Twitter or LinkedIn work. So my Twitter handles at KM Gillespie, so just my whole last name. And then it's, you know, Kelly Gillespie at Bayer. Uh, I think LinkedIn works better if you just search search for the person. And and, and that LinkedIn is, is definitely much more used by people in uh, industry than in academia. So if you are interested in in the industry that link getting your LinkedIn and starting to build your network that way is probably well worth doing early on. Liz, I don't care about your LinkedIn. Tell us about your Twitter. (laughs) I don't care about my LinkedIn either. (laughs) Um, You can find me on Twitter at at ehaswell. And you can find me at Baxter Twee, that's T-W-I. And you can find the podcast on Twitter at Taproot Podcast. And with that, uh, we will sign off for this week. And thank you so much, Kelly. Yeah. Thanks, thank Kelly. The Taproot is brought to you by the American Society of Plant Biologists and the Plant A website. It is co-hosted and edited by Ivan Baxter and Liz Haswell and produced by Mary Williams and Katie Rogers. We get editing help from Katie Rogers. We are very excited to have Joe Stormer help us out with transcripts for Season 4. If you like this episode, tell your friends and colleagues, and be sure to subscribe on your iTunes or in your podcast player of choice. Thanks for listening, and we'll bring you another story behind the science in two